Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey folks, Eddie Trunk here, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Every Thursday, new episodes, Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening around the world and checking out the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It is greatly appreciated, bringing you all sorts of great rock talk, interview, conversation, analysis, etc. each and every week. And interview this week is going to be a fun one. And an interesting one. And as always, all the interviews you hear on my podcast originate on my Sirius XM radio show, which is called Trunk Nation and heard Monday through Friday, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on volume channel 106 with nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern and full shows, audio, video, and more anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. If you're listening to just the podcast, You are getting just a tiny, tiny taste of what I do on a daily basis on the radio. So hope you come on board and join me each and every day on Sirius XM volume for Trunk Nation. There's also a sixth show on Mondays, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. And that is heard on channel 39, Hair Nation. You got the FM terrestrial radio show on more than 30 radio stations across the country bringing in a lot of great hard rock and metal music, and of course this podcast, making eight broadcasts a week for you to check out, and I thank you for connecting and doing so. Don't forget about social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, fan page on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where I would be the most active as far as info and updates. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of covers a cameo too. If you're interested in a cameo video, I just did a nice birthday video for somebody. I appreciate uh, those orders. And if you are interested in Cameo, just search for my profile at Cameo.com. Just a quick note, uh, you cannot book Cameos for me any longer through the app on an Apple device. Apple was charging a tremendous amount of money for uh, a percentage to do it that way. So if you want to Book on Cameo, go to Cameo.com directly on the website and do it. Or if you're on an Android, you can go ahead and do it there via the app. All right. So the interview this week is with an author by the name of Doug Broad, who wrote a fantastic book called They All Just, uh, I always screw up the title. Hold on a second. Hold on. The book is right here. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Even though. 
it's the cheap it's a lyric and a cheap trick song surrender i always just get it wrong let me give you the full title of the book they just seem a little weird how kiss cheap trick aerosmith and stars remade rock and roll now a couple years ago doug the author who wrote this book contacted me and asked if he could ask me some questions for the book and interview me for it, which I did. And at that time I said to him, look, I love all four of these bands, but stars, nobody knows who stars is. And he said, yeah, but uh, they're important to me. And I, and I thought it was incredibly cool that he was including them in that, in, in that sentence. And with those other three bands, But again, uh, in all honesty, they're a band that unfortunately just never made it. So people are trying to figure out how they fit into the picture. And a lot of this book, Doug talks about, in his view, why they fit into the picture. Despite their lack of commercial success and mainstream awareness, he feels that they are a viable addition because... All four of these bands are connected, and throughout the book, he tries to make that connection. It's a it's a fascinating read. I got to tell you, the book is fantastic. If you are a fan of 70s-based hard rock music, the book is great. And if you don't know who Stars is, which is the only band of the four that obviously is not a household name, you'll learn about them in this book, and it may even inspire you to go out and, and check out their music. Which I've known Star's guitarist, Richie Rano, for 40 years almost. Uh, He's a New Jersey guy like me, and I've known him and seen him. And back when he put on Kiss conventions, I, I know Richie to this day. And in the conversation you're about to hear, Richie actually joins us in the last segment. He, uh, he was listening and he called in and I put him on the air. So he he jumps in towards the end of the conversation with Doug about this book. And at the time I did this interview a couple weeks ago, I had not completely finished the book. I read about 80% of it. Now, at the time I'm recording the open to this podcast, I did finish off the book. And again, it is a great read. So I cannot recommend it more highly if you're looking for a great book, if you're a fan of 70s hard rock, if you're a fan of any of these four bands, or like me, a fan of all four of them, uh, you'll you'll be very entertained by this book. You can't go wrong with it. I, I, I'll i tell you, I've got a, a ton of books stacked up here, and many of them I just, it's very hard to make the time commitment to read. But this one, I actually carved out an hour at the end of my day every day to sit down and read some of it because it was that good. So I think you'll enjoy it. The conversation with Doug is quite long and quite wide ranging about these four bands, among others. And um, even with the time we had, there was still so much more that I would have gotten to or like to have gotten to uh, about uh, these these groups in this period of time in rock history. So without further ado, since it is one of the longer interviews I've done in a while, we're going to get to it right now. Uh, coming up, as a matter of fact, here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, Doug Broad, author of the book, They Just Seem a Little Weird, a book about Kiss, Stars, Aerosmith, and Cheap Trick. And we'll have a conversation with him about it coming up next. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey. 
Hey folks, are you paying out of your own pocket for gear you need to do your job? All kinds of departments across the nation, all those good folks, police, fire, EMS, medical workers on the front lines, even military units. Uh, You deal with constrained budgets, outdated gear, but there's still a job to do and you need the right gear to do it. Hunting for military first responder discounts has historically required going from one website to another, creating multiple account logins just to make purchases and jumping through various hoops to verify your service. Don't you wish there was just one, one place where you could visit that had a carefully crafted selection of deals for military first responders in one spot? Well, folks, we got that answer for you because it is the place to go, and that place is no doubt about it what I'm about to tell you about, and that is GovX.com. GovX works directly with brands to negotiate the best price possible because you deserve the gear you need at the prices you've earned. Plus, you can trust that the gear you're ordering is 100% authentic direct from the manufacturers. Big general retailers, they don't care about you and your sacrifices as long as you're clicking on the add to the cart button. Not GovX. Got a huge collection of gear and apparel from popular brands all in one convenient location. GovX honors your service and gives back to your communities. So if you're an American of service, a current or former member of the military, firefighters, frontline medical or law enforcement communities, or the emergency medical communities, join GovX for free. And enjoy a community that honors and gives back to patriots like you. And if you got a military or a first responder background, you visit GovX.com. You sign up for free for instant access to tons of deals and a community that honors your service. And check this out. Use the promo code TRUNK15, T-R-U-N-K-15. You get $15 off your first order of $50 or more. That's an amazing deal. Just use my code, TRUNK, T-R-U-N-K, 15, govx.com, G-O-V-X.com. From the team that brought you the big podcast with Shaq, it's the Big Shot Bob Pod. With the biggest shooter in NBA history, Robert Ori. The Ori for three. Oh, unbelievable. This guy is off the charts. The Big Shot Bob Pod. Yeah, of course we're talking about hoops. Charles Oakley. We played him in the finals when we was the Rockets, and I dunked on Oak, and I kind of flexed on like, ah! Oh. And, uh, and Oak didn't do anything. I went down the court like this. I just, <laughs> oh, I just missed a punch to the jaw in, boy. The Big Shot Bob Pod is coming your way soon on the Podcast One app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, LiveByLive.com, and everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk here with you on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, I set it up at the top. Author Doug Broad is my guest, talking about his great book. They just seem a little weird. Here is Doug. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Doug. How are you, man? Um, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I guess, you know, the last time and only time we ever spoke before was when you actually talked to me a little bit for this book, which was... 
I guess. When did you start writing it? Was it a couple of years ago? A couple of years ago, yeah. Um, in you know, since then, I interviewed around 136 people for the book, and uh, you know, it finally came out last month, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it's getting some good reaction. You know, I'll tell you, I, uh, I, I, I was saying to my audience, uh, the challenge with getting books for me is doing this is and doing interviews is. I, I love to interview authors about books after I've had a chance to read the book. And needless to say, reading a book is time consuming. So I don't always get a chance to do that with your book. I really put the pedal to the metal and I am about 85% through with it. I'm, I'm so I'm almost there, but I got to tell you, Doug, and I'm not just saying this cause you're on the air with me. It was not it was just finding the time. It wasn't that I ever wanted to put it down. It, it's a fantastic read a tremendous job on this. I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad to hear that. Um, and one thing is, you know, the chapters are kind of short, so it is kind of a breeze to read. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I've recommended it to all my friends who are around my age that, uh, you know, that grew up with these bands and grew up loving these bands. Before we get into specifics on the book, what a little bit of your background, Doug. You were an editor and a writer in the past, right? Yeah, um, God, I've, I've been in a writer and editor for a long time, mostly magazine editor. I worked for uh, 11 years at Entertainment Weekly. I was the editor-in-chief of Spin Magazine for six years, and I was at TV Guide for a while as well. So I've, I've been a magazine editor pretty much all my life, and I've also written a lot about music for The Village Voice, for Trouser Press Record Guide, for Classic Rock Magazine, and many other places. Were you at Spin when Spin did the four individual Kiss covers for the reunion? That was before my time. No, I was there um, during the days of the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, um, pretty much the early 2000s. Okay, and where did you grow up, Doug? Um, actually, I, I grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, in New okay. York. So, All right, so yeah. you're in New York local guy. So the reason why I bring in that up, and I believe you're around my age, uh, I'm 56. So you're in that area as well. Uh, I am. Yes. The reason why I'm asking this is because that's all important for context. When we talk about the bands you've written about in these books, because in your book, because obviously you would have grown up with them in the same way that I did. So tell me the idea that you had to do this book because as i mentioned to you when you first talked to me about this and in all honesty i've been you know since i've been promoing the book and you coming on stars is the one band that i need to explain to people who they are because they are very much the outlier in all of this in the sense that not not that they weren't a great band but they were not commercially successful so tell me about putting this book together the concept behind it and why these four bands uh that's a great question so you know i i always wanted to write a book about kiss and cheap trick who are always two of my favorite bands and you know they were very connected in the 70s they toured together you know the bands have been friends forever um and i i figured i'd tell the story of 70s rock through the eyes of kiss and cheap trick and when I looked at Gene's solo album from 78, he had not only Rick Nielsen playing on it, but he also had Joe Perry from Aerosmith, and he had Richie Rano from Stars. And I figured, you know, that'd be a great way to tell the story of 70s rock through the eyes of these four bands that were very interconnected. I mean, you're right, Stars is kind of the outlier. They're, they're kind of 
a wild card. Um, you know, they had many of the same opportunities as these other bands. They had four albums on Capitol. They were managed by Bill O'Coin, who was Kiss's manager. They toured a lot with Aerosmith. Um, Jack Douglas, who produced um, Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, also produced Stars. And so I wanted to explore why a band like Stars never really made it, despite having many of the same opportunities. And I figured I can tell that story, you know, as, as a band connected with these other three bands. Now, are you now when you say that, and and I again, I I'm not uh, saying this in any way to be disparaging of stars who I am a fan of. Who you know, I know Richie, who's a friend for years. I've seen the band mm-hmm. in recent years. Michael Lee Smith can still sing incredibly well. Great songs. A band that people who do know them were very influ- influenced by them. So I I don't mean this in any way to be disparaging about stars, but I'm assuming that you are a fan because. You could easily say some of the things you said. Well, beyond the Gene Simmons things, like thing like, for instance, I was a huge fan of uh, Piper, which was technically the first band I ever saw live because I saw them open for Kiss, and they were mm-hmm. managed by a Coin. They had a couple records. Sean Delaney produced their second record, so you can connect some of these dots with other bands of that time. It sounds to me also be above and beyond all that. Were you a Stars fan? Did you go see them back in the day? Actually, I did not, and I only became a Stars fan uh, when they re-released um, their material on CD through Ryko Disc. I think in around right. two thousand four, two thousand five. Um, you know, I always knew about them from reading Cream magazine and Circus magazine and seeing their ads and their. You know, they had they had a great logo, um, but I never really investigated. And by the time you know, in seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty, I kind of moved on to punk rock and new wave so they kind of fell away but then you know i heard them and i and i and i love their records when i first heard them and you know that's kind of how they made the the imprint on me and i hear what you're saying about a band like piper you know people have said oh, what about ted nugent he had some connections but frankly i mean i really love stars and you know, the the connections ran so deep as I did more digging. I mean, they had connections with Cheap Trick's manager even before he was managing Cheap Trick back in, in Wisconsin. So there's a lot of um, history there that's never really been, you know, uncovered. And hopefully in the book, I was able to do that. Yeah, and we're going to talk about all four of these bands in with, with the book as well. But, you know, what's interesting, and I'm curious, is... The, the you including a band like stars with other with three other bands that are honestly with rock fans are all, are all household names but you including them in that grouping has it have you felt like it's uh caused people to seek them out a little bit to have renewed interest in them to ask questions like wait who is that band and let's find out about them are you picking up on that in other interviews and people you're talking to since the book has been out <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny because a lot of people are contacting me through Facebook and Twitter and saying how much they like the book and, and, and appreciating that I turned them on to stars. They never heard about stars before. At the same time, with some of the other interviews that I've been doing for, for terrestrial radio, with a lot of these guys who were 
old timers and even older than us who have been around forever, they're all asking about stars. They remember stars. They're like, whatever happened to stars? So um, at the same time, people are asking me, you know, or who, who are telling me they're appreciating the fact that I kind of brought stars out again and they like them. Um, at the same time, a lot of the old timers are saying, wow, good for you for talking about stars again. So it, it's a great feeling. Yeah, you know, I I uh when I was doing my TV show that metal show on I we used to always wear different band shirts on every episode and I one day wore a star shirt and it, it we did a fo- ironically that day that we did that taping that I wore the shirt in was also the day the network decided they wanted to do some new uh, photos of of us. So in in a lot mm-hmm. of the promo photos of that season, I'm wearing the same thing, the star shirt. And uh, not long after that all aired, I went to see stars at a club in New Jersey, and Michael E. Smith came up to me and he said, I just want to thank you for wearing our shirt on TV. He goes, because in that one hour of television, he said, you probably brought more attention and promotion to the band than in four albums on Capitol. I was like, man, that's really sad. But in a way, you know, when you, you know the story, it's just, it's not, unfortunately, it's not a unique story. There's a lot of bands that have had, you know, fall between the cracks like that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and those guys, they all have a sense of humor. They, they get it. And, you know, I, I think what Michael said was probably, uh, I mean, he was obviously um, exaggerating, but it's, it's funny he would say that. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Of these four bands, Doug, who is your personal favorite and who did you, who have you seen the most and what, what's, uh, what's the one that was like the gateway for you? Well, the gateway for me was, was kiss. You know, I saw them, uh, God in 74 or 75 on TV on the Mike Douglas show. And, you know, I was 10 years old and I just totally fell in love with them. I was a big, like a horror sci-fi fantasy geek. And they just, played to that for me. They look cool. The songs were just cool and fun and simple. Um, so I was like all in with Kiss for a bunch of years. And then I discovered Cheap Trick when that first album came out. And that, you know, they became my favorite band of all time. Um, and I've seen them probably around 50 times. I pretty much saw them, gosh, like every time they played New York, uh, I've missed a couple of times, but I, I try to see them whenever they played New York. How much cooperation did you get from these four bands in making this book? If any, um, well, yeah. So um, I didn't get any cooperation from Aerosmith. They declined to be interviewed for whatever reason. Um, with Kiss, I spoke with Paul Stanley uh, for a number of hours. Um, he was the only one who participated. I had, spoken to to gene around 10 years ago for a piece i did for spin magazine and i had a lot of outtakes that were um germane to this story so i was able to use some uh quotes from that you know from that interview um with cheap trick um i spoke to bunny carlos at length i went to um uh Illinois to speak with him in his drum barn, spent a day with him up there. Um, I spoke to Rick Nielsen for the book. Um, Neither Robin nor Tom Peterson um, wanted to talk for the book um, for whatever reason. And then with stars, um, I I got all the guys in the band. So, um, yeah, I got a lot of cooperation. 
Yeah, and and uh, I'm at the point now when you talk about Cheap Trick. So where I left, where I'm left off on the book, and I can tell you because I got it right in front of me with a marker in it. I, I'm about to start chapter 25, which is titled Surrender. So I'm at page 237 right now. So I just read in the book the whole thing about, and it's it's interesting bringing the stars thing back into it. One of the reasons and ways I know Richie for, for decades is because when he was doing those kiss conventions, often I would either appear at them or, uh, you know, sometimes I went there with Ace because I was working with him at the time. So I, I know him from, you know, from, from back in those days. Uh, that's how long we go back. But I'm um, I'm curious when it comes to Cheap Trick, do you get uh, since Bunny Carlos was your guy and clearly he's the one guy not in the band anymore? Do you get into in the book his departure from the band and the the circumstances surrounding it? Um, not too much actually, only because um, you know the, the the book pretty much takes place uh, in the seventies and eighties and he was gone much later. So I didn't think his departure really, um, merited much, uh, because it didn't really tie into the, the, the thread of the story, um, as much as say Tom Peterson's departure did or Joe Perry's or Peter's or Ace's did, because those all happened, um, pretty much during the, you know, the, the heyday of those bands. So, I didn't feel the need to get into it, and it's all it's it's you know it's been talked about in the press already, and Rolling Stone has had the back and forth between Bunny and the band, and I just didn't really, I mean, I, I had I had to stop somewhere, so I didn't feel the need to get too deep into it. Yeah. Now the reason why I ask is because you you talk about it's it's been out there a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, I know I know uh, in the case of this book, I pretty much. I mean, I know all of these guys. Uh, one of them won't talk to me. <laughs> That's Paul Stanley. But outside of that, uh, the, the you know, and that, and because Paul won't talk to me, the rest of the band can't. But uh, outside of that, the you know, the other guys, the Aerosmith guys, I've spent time with Cheap Trick guys, great friends. You know, Richie and Michael, the Stars guys. So I I, I know all of these guys. But with Cheap Trick, it's funny because uh, I. When you, and I don't know Bun. I've never really talked to Bunny, but the other guys, you, you never really, I never really got a straight answer on what happened there. And a lot of times when I've asked them on the record, they'd say things like, well, he's still in the band. He just doesn't tour with us anymore. So it was always like a clouded thing to me, at least. And I just never got a real defined answer on it. Yeah, you know, and that's the one thing about Cheap Trick, I think, compared to these other bands, there's not a lot out there about their you know, their personal lives. There's not a lot of dirt out there on Cheap Trick for whatever reason. And, you know, I, in, in, the, in the case of Bunny, you know, he's been very blunt about his reasons for leaving the band. And then the band also has been blunt about why they think he's gone as well. And from what I understand, you know, he does, you know, retain interest in the band. So he is kind of a, he, he is still a member, but not touring. He's still part of the Cheap Trick organization, although he doesn't really have anything to do with the, you know, the day-to-day -day touring and recording of it. Let, let's talk for a second about um, clearly the two biggest bands in the book, and that would be Kiss and Aerosmith. And that is still the case now. I mean, you can talk about that being the case in the 70s, but still sure. also the case now. What's interesting about this 
and, and you touch on this, is there really was a a rivalry between those two bands from day one, wasn't there? There, were, there was. Um, you know, 1974, both bands were pretty much just starting out, and they did two shows together. Um, you know, Aerosmith had two albums. They had just released um, Get Your Wings. Um, Kiss had one album, they, their debut, and they had just started playing outside of New York. Um, they did a show in Ohio, and then they did a show in Detroit a few weeks apart. And, you know, KISS had these outrageous demands for an opening band. Um, They had their show. It was a rudimentary show. It wasn't what you see now, obviously, but it still was something. And, you know, that that intimidated a lot of other bands. Um, They didn't want these explosions and, you know, big lighted logos and drum risers and all of this stuff. And, you know, at at some point... um, you know, the road crews, the Aerosmith and Kiss road crews at these shows got into some confrontations. Um, in fact, at one of them, not a, you know, a knife was drawn or a couple of knives were drawn. So th- there was a lot of um, animosity there, at least between the road crews. And, you know, I, I, Steven Tyler never really got Kiss or liked Kiss. And I think you know, the, the the potential violence at those shows um, really turned him off, and he never really wanted to have anything, anything to do with the band. Um, Joe Perry, however, um, appreciated the music a little bit, but he actually, you know, he was, in awe, he was kind of in awe of the show and in awe and intimidated. Um, he did not want to have to follow something like that. In fact, he famously you know, freaked out after one of those shows and said, you know, we have to dress up like clowns now to get noticed. And, you know, that he warmed up to Kiss, though, and they, you know, he became friendly with them, and obviously he plays on Gene's record. Um, but then later on, um, when they started touring together, um, you know, the old animosities came up again. And you know, we all know what happened when uh, Steven started trash-talking kiss on the radio and paul sort of gave as good as he got you know and and so that that has still been that's been going on for quite a while yeah i don't know if you saw the uh the fairly legendary now uh, very quickly legendary among kiss circles uh, during this quarantine uh, you know everybody on the planet is doing these online interviews and youtube channels and podcasts and whatever did you see richard marks interviewing paul stanley I did not. Oh, you got to pull it up and and watch this. I you want to talk about the <laughs> you want to talk about the rivalry and animosity. Richard Marks, the 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 singer songwriter, is doing some YouTube show and he's got Paul on as his guest and it's on video and they're having this like nice conversation and talking about all these bands they love and then Richard Marks does this huge build up where he goes, "All right, look, Paul, I got to talk to you about a guy who I mean is a total freak. I mean, no matter what." How much time goes by? He's still the best front man and singer we have. I mean, he's a complete marvel. This guy is unbelievable. Let's talk about Steven Tyler. And you can see the blood just pour out of Paul's face. It is the most awkward moment. Paul doesn't say anything for a minute. Richard Marks goes, did I say something wrong? And Paul Stanley's response is, let's talk about Rod Stewart. (laughs) It's like, he won't even acknowledge Steven Tyler exists. And by the way, I agree with Richard Marks. I mean, 
the, we have we have um, in these bands. You have two people that are are absolutely ageless in the fact of their abilities as singers and frontmen, and that would be Tyler and Robin Zander, who is also still ridiculous. So it's amazing how some of these guys have held up. You know, Paul Stanley physically is still uh, in great shape, but we don't know what's going on vocally. But in terms of just being able to sing in front of band, when I go see either Aerosmith or Cheap Trick to this day, it puts me back in 78, 77, because both of them still look and sound that good. It's remarkable. Absolutely. And that's one of the great things about, in fact, all four of these bands, you know, up until the pandemic um, struck, they were all out playing. I mean, stars were about to go on tour with Angel. You know, Kiss were in the midst of their farewell shows. Um, Aerosmith were doing their Las Vegas residency. And Cheap Trick are always touring. And they were, gonna, they were about to go out with Rod Stewart. So, you know, these guys are all around 70 years old. And they're still, you know, they still look great on stage and they sound great. In another similarity between Kiss and Aerosmith when they first started and whatever rivalries existed or what have you, was the fact that both bands were told at that time that they, very early on, and even on their first uh, few records, it was questioned whether they could actually play and whether it was actually them playing on the records. I mean, that was another uh, line between the two bands. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I think those those questions have... They're kind of moot now. Um, I don't think they even matter. Um, I mean, the Kiss stuff always sounded pretty easy to play, and that's something that, that a lot of people I interviewed for the book, a lot of the the, the artists that came later, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, they, a lot of them told me that, that Kiss were their first band because they made them want to be rock stars. Their stuff was so easy to play, so direct. You didn't have to be Steve Vai or Joe Satriani, you know, this fleet-fingered marvel. You could actually just play Kiss songs pretty straightforwardly, and I think that's one of the beauties of that band. Yeah, and of course, both Kiss and Aerosmith in their career have had to use and have used ghost musicians. Kiss probably way more than Aerosmith, but Aerosmith famously on the second record, I heard an interview recently with Jack Douglas who admitted that, that on a couple of the tracks he brought in, I think it was Dick Wagner, some people to play on Get Your Wings. And when Jack Douglas was asked why, he just said that uh, they just weren't ready to, to hit the bar he needed them to hit at that point. You spoke to Jack, who looms large in all of this uh, story, don't, didn't you? I mean, I know I, you did. I read the I, book, I, but I Jack Jack brought a lot to the table here, right? Well, actually, it's funny. I didn't speak to Jack for the book, although I was able to um, get a lot of research on him, and uh, I found a lot of interviews with him and was able to use a lot of that stuff. Um, I had actually approached Jack um, a couple of times, uh, personally, and then also through uh, through various um, mutual acquaintances, and and he he declined to be interviewed for the book. Although you know he does a lot of interviews on YouTube and for various publications. Mm. So um, yeah, for some reason he didn't want to uh, participate. Um, but yeah, no, he he looms really large in this story because you know he was responsible for you know Aerosmith's best records for you know two of Cheap Trick's finest records for two of Stars' records. So he was a, a, a big part of this story.
Did it? I felt like you talked to Jack just because he's referenced, I guess, so much in the book. But did yeah. uh, refresh yeah. my memory, Doug? Did did Jack mm-hmm. ever? I know he never produced a Kiss record, but what didn't didn't I read? He was approached, or there was discussion about it at one point. Yes, yes. So um, after Kiss made Destroyer with Bob Ezrin, um, you know they they were skittish about it. I mean, right now it's it's looked upon as a classic, but back then. Um, it really took Kiss out of their comfort zone with all the orchestrations and the the, the boys' choir and the calliopes and various other you know uh, filigrees on that record. Um, so uh, so what Bill O'Coin did was for their next record, which um, you know which they they end up getting uh, Eddie Kramer for. Um, he actually approached Jack Douglas. Um, to see if he would produce the next Kiss record. And uh, Jack was actually doing a lot of stuff with Aerosmith at the time, so he couldn't do it. But Bob Ezrin was, you know, was very vocal about about feeling betrayed that um, O'Coin would, like, not go back to Ezrin or even mention to Ezrin that he was going to Jack, who was kind of like a protege to Bob Ezrin. So um, he does figure in that story a bit, but but Douglas never had anything, anything to do with Kiss after that one little scandal. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to understand and to realize that Destroyer was such a polarizing record at the time because it's looked at as the, by many, the definitive Kiss studio record when in reality it was at the time really polarizing and something that they felt at the time they almost needed to recover from, which is why they went in and did a really stripped down, almost live sounding record with Rock and Roll Over. But what you, now Destroyers looked at as this iconic record, but then even though it was successful, it really was polarizing polarizing to the fan base. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, you think about that record and, you know, Beth was the hit and Beth was the song that, you know, kind of made, in a, in a way, made Kiss's pop career. Um, but you think about that record and, and Peter Chris is the only one from the band who's on that single. It's like none of the other guys play on that record, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Now, as much as you spend time in the 70s, heyday for all these bands, Doug, you do, and I was glad to see this, you do also venture into the 80s and also deal with some of the offshoot projects from these bands, whether in the case of Aerosmith, Joe Perry Project, or Whitford St. Holmes. I mean, with Kiss, you even get as deep into doing a big section on uh, what Sean Delaney did with the Scat Brothers and all of that. I thought that was a really interesting yeah. thing because I love I love deep stuff like that. And I, I know many of those records and songs, and I, I'm always very fascinated. Uh, I'm super fascinated with these bands and the way they achieved the success, but sometimes I'm almost equally fascinated when it begins to unravel and all this, this the offshoot stuff. And I was really glad you included that in there as well. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's it's for me as a researcher and writer. I mean, I took so much pleasure in getting the stars' story. So you know, stars came from um, the band Looking Glass, who had a hit with "Brandy or a Fine Girl" in 1972, and Richie Rano came from Stories, who had a hit with "Brother Louie," and from Stars, um, Peter Sweevil, who was the bass player when he left the band, he 
started in with uh, Sean Delaney and Scat Brothers, which was a rock disco band. And, you know, I had never really heard of them until I was researching this book, and I really went in deep with them. And they're, they have two records that are just kind of totally out there, outrageous. Um, and it was just a fun story to, to report out, and, and I think I have stuff that no one else has ever gotten. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, and you, and you talk about stars and those guys having come from having had some history with other groups. That's something they tried to suppress when they came out as a as a you know harder rock act. Because I went, you, you know, reading your book, and even though I I know and love all these bands, it still inspired me to go on YouTube and find some things. And I found a TV interview with stars from like seventy seven. <laughs> where they ask, the interviewer asks them, so what were you guys doing before Stars? And they all put their heads down and say, we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, Richie, Richie Rano told me that, you know, one of the things when they, when they started Stars and they started playing out, it's like he said, if, if, if people know, if our fans know that we came from these kind of wimpy pop bands, you know, we kind of lose some credibility. So... I think it, it was a very conscious decision not to um, remark on their their histories. So you know that that was kind of what they went for. And and stars had a very unique beginning because they didn't come up from the clubs. I mean, they were they were an O'Coin band. You know, he had Kiss. Kiss gave them gave him a lot of leverage. So right away, stars were playing you know, theaters opening for Peter Frampton and ZZ Top, and then playing arenas opening for Aerosmith and Ted Nugent. So they were always an arena band. They were never a club band. Speaking of opening, I'd love to get your take on this. So Aero, uh, Cheap Trick had obviously a, a huge period, 77, 78, 79, Budokan Dream Police period where they they reached the point where in most parts of the country they could be a full-fledged arena headliner but it was a very very brief moment and mm -hmm. before and ever since Cheap Trick are the perennial opening act mm -hmm. co-headline uh, state theater community theater touring band and to their credit uh, the, and I, uh, those guys can play with anybody on any bill, uh, the biggest festival or the smallest club, and they're always happy to do their thing, and they do it so well. But why do you think they slotted in like that? When you think about Cheap Trick, I mean, there are two songs that get played all the time on the radio. There's probably 10 songs that are fairly well known. But why do you think they didn't ascend to the heights of where Kiss and Aerosmith still live being that big draw, that festival headliner, the uh, arena headliner. Why do you think they occupy that space versus bigger? Well, I think a lot of, for, for Cheap Trick, I think a lot of it comes down to momentum. I mean, I, I saw them for the first time um, when they headlined The Garden in 1980. Um, the Romantics were opening. And that was right after Dream Police had come out. And very soon after that, um, Tom Peterson left the band. And, you know, losing a, a main member of the band like that um, at their height is, is, a, is a tough thing for a band to recover from. And the next year they came around to New York, 
they were playing Radio City. So they went from playing a 16,000-seat arena to a, a, a 6,000-capacity uh, theater uh, within a year. So, you know, I don't think they ever recovered. And they had a, a string of albums in the 80s that, you know, were I think were great as a fan, but, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of hits during that period. Um, when they actually did recover and had a, they had a big hit with The Flame in the late 80s, um, they were still an opening band, and that was their, their only number one song. And I saw them open for um, Robert Plant at the Garden during that period. So they never really recovered and, and became a, an arena headliner again. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. Yeah, and I mean, again, even to this day, I about seven eight years ago, I did a tour. I hosted a, a handful of shows through uh, through the Midwest with Aerosmith with Cheap Trick opening. I spent a lot of time with those guys. Traveled with them. I mean, they were very content to go on do their hour set before Aerosmith. And this is like seven eight years ago. So it's just like mm-hmm. you know, they they've always occupied that space. They they didn't have the spectacular unraveling or anything that both Kiss and Aerosmith had. If you think, you know, Aerosmith, Aerosmith probably the one band in all of this that was the most drug-addled. I mean, that would be fair to say, right? They, they're, the, mm-hmm. they're the ones oh, where I, drugs I so. played the hugest issue by far. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, and, you know, that, that also, in the case of Aerosmith, led to a lot of inconsistent shows. Um, but you can say this for for kiss and cheap trick it's kind of hard to see either of those bands do a bad show but i've never i've really never seen i've seen cheap cheap trick 50 times i've never seen them do a bad show um so there's something about the consistency the quality um of the bands but you're right aerosmith were the ones that were probably the most troubled yeah, and I saw Aerosmith without Perry and Whitford. As a matter of fact, that was the first time I saw them. Rock in a Hard Place, which I think is a really underrated record. And mm-hmm. it, it's it's interesting because people make this comment about Aerosmith a lot, which I've never done drugs. I don't condone drugs in any way, but there are people that will say mm-hmm. they were the best when they were on drugs. Well, maybe creatively <laughs> making rocks and draw the line and toys in the attic, but Definitely not live because if you've seen the videos, they were, you know, they were at times a mess, like you said. But there's also, and again, not condoning drugs in any way, but I'll tell you what, uh, Doug, when you're in this day and age of so many bands, and I know for a fact Aerosmith does not do this, but I, and neither does Cheap Trick, but in this day and age of so many bands using electronics and autocorrect and vocal tracks and all this nonsense, which I despise, there's actually, it's actually kind of, refreshing to see a real live band that can slip up and have a bit of a train wreck i i saw aerosmith in vegas on their residency recently about a year or two ago whenever before it Mm -hmm. ended and um i went two or three nights in a row and they had a bad show the night i went and it wasn't because they were you know high or anything they just didn't click and it was wonderful in its recklessness it was like in its imperfection, it was absolutely brilliant because that's what a real live rock and roll show is. And at the end of the night, Steven Tyler says to the audience uh, with Joe Perry standing next to him, he goes, man, Joe, that was a rough one. We, we sort of, you know, fucked up a lot, didn't we? And Joe just <laughs> nods his head. And then Tyler turns to the audience and goes, 
but you guys just saw a real live rock and roll show. Did you have fun? And the crowd went nuts. And and there is that element that I do miss a lot about some of today's music where everything has got to be so dialed in. You don't even know really know what you're hearing. And I think that that, that recklessness, which, of course, was probably an imprint that Aerosmith put on Guns N' Roses, who were heroes to Aerosmith, is is a big mm-hmm. it was a big thing. I think that that's something that's um a little bit missing with some of the the newer bands today. Oh well, I, I totally hear you on that, and it's it's funny because I saw Cheap Trick a few years ago at the West at Westbury uh, Theater, and it was a similar show. I mean, it wasn't a bad show by any means, but it was a very loose show for them. And at one point, they did a song that they hadn't done in a very very long time, and Robin had to pull out a cheat sheet. And he didn't have his glasses, so we actually stopped the show to ask someone in the audience if they had reading glasses he could borrow. <laughs> and they passed the glasses up to him, and he was able to do the song by you know, using someone's glasses from the audience. And it was just such a wonderful human moment that it kind of broke the continuity of a rock and roll show, but you didn't mind. It was just lovely to see that. Yeah, when I was on that run with Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, I would always bust Rick's balls and say, you got to play this tonight, you got to play that tonight. And he would always say to me, we only got an hour, man. We got an hour. And every (laughs) once in a while, they'd put a song in. And then he, I'll never forget this, he said to me, look, come to one of our headline shows and you write the set list and we'll play it. And I was just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. right. The night before the show, it was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It was, you know, it was probably eight years ago. I get a an email from Carla, their tour manager, and she says, Rick wants the set list for tomorrow night. I said, don't make me do this. I know he's not going to play the stuff I'm going to write. I'm going to put Speak Now on there. I'm going to put Downed on there. I'm going to put... No, no, he wants it. So I hammer out 20 songs. I email it to her. Next day, I show up at the gig. Doug, they played every song. And and I was stunned because I said to them... How did you learn this stuff in time to do it? And they said, learn. We've never rehearsed in our life. <laughs> and I was mm-hmm. like, that is amazing. And, and of course, I didn't have one hit on my list. And it was a casino crowd. So the crowd was getting really <laughs> restless when they weren't hearing, I want you to want me. And then, of course, Rick outs me from the stage to the crowd and says, if you don't like what we're playing tonight, blame our friend Eddie Trunk. He picked every song. My wife wanted to die sitting next to me. And then they came out, and for the encores, they did all the hits, which sent everybody home happy. But there's such a unique band in that way. It's not like, well, we don't have time to rehearse it. We don't have time to do the tuning or load the tracks in or all this other nonsense. They'll just bang it out. If you make a request, they may actually play it. Well, that, that's funny because um, Cheap Trick uh, played Joe Perry's 50th birthday party, and it's a story I tell in the book. And uh, for the party, um, Rick told Joe to give him a set list. So Joe wrote the set list, gave it to the band, and just like you said, um, when they were playing, Rick said, if you don't like the set list, blame Joe. He wrote it. So, <laughs> you know, that's kind of that's kind of something that he does. Um, but, you know, God bless him that, you know, they've got tons of records and they still know every song. Yeah. And of course, Dax plays in the band now because that's what I was saying, too. At that time, Dax was in and I'm like. 
How's your kid going to know all this stuff? Because he knows he knows the catalog better than we do. And son of a gun, they played mm-hmm. it all, and they played it amazingly well. It was it was so great. You really tie a lot of different things together. The people these bands influenced, uh, just you know, the the offshoot bands. It it really is so encompassing of this whole time, and I, I just. I just love that you were able to do all that. Uh, who were some of your favorite people to talk to for the book, Doug? Spoke to a lot of guys from, yeah, I Doug. guess, the, the hair metal and grunge days. Um, and some of the best were, like, Sebastian Bach had a lot to say, Butch Walker, um, Gilby Clark was great, and um, Kim Thale from Soundgarden I had on the phone for, like, three hours, and he was just the most... <laughs> he was a huge fan of, of this music, and he's so articulate about, you know, what he liked about them and how much they influenced and, 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 and drove his career. Yeah, well, you know, if you're in that sweet spot of that age group, which, which is why I asked you earlier about where you were from and your age, it, it, because I look at this and my gateway band was, well, actually my real gateway band was raspberries. That was the first rock I ever heard. But the thing that set me totally on my path was, was kiss. And for a couple of years, nothing existed in my world as a kid than kiss. And then the first band I let in that wasn't kiss. And the first poster that ever went on my wall that wasn't kiss was Aerosmith. So, you know, mm-hmm. th- you would find, I would think, for people in their 50s, a-, a connector to all of these bands in some way. Maybe not stars so much because they weren't commercially successful, but but the other bands. And along those lines, when it comes to stars, you, you, there's an, you sort of make the allegation in the book, and others do as well, that the lack of commercial success for stars could have also been attributed to kiss in some ways being jealous because a coin was managing another act. Talk a little about that, if you will. Well, you know, Paul actually says in his book, uh, which I really, I really love that book. Um, he says in the book that, that kiss were not happy with the fact that O'Coin had these other bands on the roster bands like Piper, um, you know, Toby, uh, Toby Bow, I think, no, sorry, not Toby Bow, um, Piper and um, New England and, and bands like that. And he felt that uh, O'Coin was just like slapping a logo on a band um, and putting them out there. And he felt that especially with stars. And that's what he told me um, when I spoke with him. Um, so it did seem like there was a little bit of uh, ego involved. They didn't want to have, you know, this band that was on their roster that um, were actually really, really good. And they were great musicians writing great songs. Maybe they didn't, they didn't want the competition. And I never realized until I saw the photos in, and I never put this together until I read your book as well, that early on stars, you have that photo of stars in the one show they ever opened for kiss and they're wearing what, what was be sort of kiss like clothing without the makeup. Like I never, I never put that together that back then they had some choreography by the same guy, Sean Delaney. There was a, a wardrobe that was very similar to them. I never realized that that was maybe one of my biggest revelations in reading your book, that there was that similarity 
from the bands. And when you think about it, coming out of the same management company, working with the same people, uh, I never saw that angle before until your book. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, um, before they became stars, the transition band between Looking Glass and Stars was a band called Falling Fallen Angels, and Fallen Angels actually opened for Kiss as well around nine months before that show in Ohio. Um, they opened for them at the Tower Theater in Philly, and that's when Fallen Angels had none of the costuming or stage presentation that that stars eventually had fallen angels were out there with you know their jeans and their you know their street clothes so it's an interesting um leap only a few months after that they they you know were sharing the stage with kiss uh looking a little bit like kiss so uh, Doug, here's what we're going to do. So Richie Rano from Stars is actually on hold, and I want to bring him into the conversation in our remaining minutes. But um, and this wasn't planned, by the way. Richie, like I said, is a friend and is listening, and he's been on hold. But I want to ask you one last question before we bring Richie in for the final segment. Of these four bands, you already mentioned Cheap Trick. I guess you, you feel like is sort of your favorite. But give me your favorite album from each of the four bands. Favorite album from each of the four bands: uh, Kiss, Love Gun, Cheap Trick, uh, Heaven Tonight, Stars, Violation, Aerosmith, Rocks. I'm with you on Stars. I'm with you on Aerosmith. I don't, that's surprising on Love Gun from you. I'm interested. That's it. I could do a whole hour on that record. with you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that record. I don't know. I mean, it has my favorite kiss song shock me on it so how could i not love the album yeah that's true i mean i don't dislike the record i i i would favor rock and roll over i'd go one album before if i had a had a pick there um but yeah it's Mm -hmm. it you know you can't go wrong with any of that stuff and again i love you got into like like you talk about unmasked in the record like i can remember what day i got (laughs) unmasked and i have my so many thoughts on unmasked alone i could do hours on it so it's just i'm just bringing this up because i want the audience to know that you really do get deep into all of this stuff and i know my audience is way into getting deep into this it's just an amazing job (laughs) thank you we have right now joining us who has been listening and we've talked about his band quite a bit from the band stars, the great Richie Rano. Richie. Hey, they don't talk to me either, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's I'm documented. Not names. That's not well. It's the same guy, I'm sure, but that's documented in your book because Doug uh, does get into the whole thing about the the Kiss mm-hmm. Expos you put on and the how you bought that warehouse and the reason you had to buy the warehouse. I mean, uh, Richie, yeah, I've known you forever, yeah. but I never knew all that story. Well, I, uh, it was a secret till now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's in print now, Richie. I, I want to ask you this. Like I was talking about with Doug, and even when Doug approached me and was nice enough to include some words from me in the book, I'm curious about, because you know I love you, and you know I love your band, but when he said those three bands, then he said stars, I'm like, well, wait a minute, where is the connection? And now I understand the connection. Since Doug's book has been out, how, how has it impacted your band? Have you heard from a lot of people that are either remembering the band or revisiting the band or wanting to learn about the band now? Um, 
you know, we noticed that a lot more people are picking up on the uh, the band page on Facebook, the Stars band page, and uh, there's actually more than there's three pan, band pages up there, I guess, by fans and stuff, and one one by us. But um, yeah, people are interested in the band. Actually, uh, yesterday I saw this thing on uh, from Classic Rock magazine. They picked the top ten essential album AOR albums from ni- from the seventies, and Violations in there, one of the ten. So uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with the book, but hey, Doug, it was great that you included us in it. I love all three of those bands myself, and uh, it's, you know I appreciate it. You did a great job on the book. I read it right away. <laughs> well, thank you. You know I love the band. Feelings mutual. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so, you. Well, Richie, welcome to Rano Nation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Richie's taking over. So Richie, tell me, uh, tell me about uh, obviously your band. You you were for people that don't know, Stars is still active. As Doug said earlier, you were going to go out and do a, a a run of dates, and obviously nobody is touring right now and hasn't for a while. But what is the status of the band? By the way, anyway, I have a gig tonight. If you want to pick the set list out, I'll play every song that you have on it. <laughs> I'm playing solo though. So it's got to be all acoustic songs. <laughs> Uh, so, so tell everybody about uh, where the band is at now, and do you think when this whole thing is over, will you be able to get out there and maybe even capitalize a little bit off of people talking about the band again, maybe due to this book? Well, you know, it's funny when we knew it was coming up and come, getting ready to come out, and we had we had like twenty gigs last year around the country, which was a nice amount of gigs for us. We thought that maybe the you know, the pre-publicity for it might help us out. And then the following year, being this year, could, it could really give us a lot more, um, you know, awareness and stuff. But uh, now, I mean, you'd have to be, uh, you know, some kind of uh, clairvoyant to know what's going to happen in the future. I have no idea what's going to happen now, you know. So uh, <laughs> uh, I might just do a solo acoustic tour of stars. Uh, having read the book, you you had uh we had talked on text a little bit recently and i'm i'm curious your thoughts on how stars comes off in the book and maybe what some of the other people and bands said about you in the book well it's obviously that it's obvious that these other people still hate us and that's fine we were the most <laughs> probably the most hated band ever by other bands come on i don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> oh. necessarily know why that is i love I mean, Aerosmith, the reason that, that Jack Douglas was our producer was because I loved Get Your Wings so much. I tra- had to find out who produced it. And then I said, this guy's like some kind of genius, and I love him, you know. So when we got our deal uh, a couple of years later, I recommended Jack, and nobody really even knew who he was, but uh, then researched him, and we got him. And so um, I loved all three bands. I mean, Cheap Trick, I think I, I was at their very first gig, if I'm not mistaken, in Madison, Wisconsin. I was hanging out there for a while. And um, and Kiss, the first album, I still think is their best album. Do you think it's fair, the comparisons that people made to Kiss? Do you see it at all? I never picked up on it till Doug's book, and Paul Stanley has some comments um, about you guys in it. What, what are your thoughts about that, and did you feel like that back in 76 when you were working with the well, coin? Well, the thing was, uh, Sean was working with us, and he said, you know, you got to make some big moves, and you got to – you know, you gotta, you're going to be playing arenas right off the bat. And he had some valid points. And then they had a costume maker who made the costumes for Kiss making the costumes for us because we, we didn't want to go out. I was wearing costumes already for 
four years or so in bands because I was big into Ziggy Stardust and David Bowie. So it's not like we just suddenly like switched to put flicked a switch and said, let's try this, which is what people seem to think we did. It's not that we were already all, all five of us were into that kind of stuff already. And but we had the we had the uh, ability to get these people involved, like the people who make Kiss Kiss's costumes. So, yeah, so there were some similarities and we quickly ditched it by the second album we didn't use we didn't wear the high boots and stuff which i wore when i was in stories so i mean it's not like i had that crazy suit that ace wore and kiss before he ever had one like that you know with the silver stuff that goes around it uh i, I when i was in stories i wore it. i have you know it's but it's whatever you know people want to they want to take you down you know people want to take you down they don't want to build you up let's let's be honest <laughs> Did you so. feel did you feel that way back then when the band was starting too? Did you feel that 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 you that people felt that way about stars then for the the public perception or even people in the industry? No, I don't think the public perception was quite to that degree. I think the problem that we had was all the promoters hated Kiss and all the other bands hated Kiss. Not us, but the other bands did. They resented them just as Doug pointed out, and the promoters hated them because of the demands they would make. So we had every band that we played with. When we played with Aerosmith, they instantly hated us because of Kiss. And, you know, we had to try to get friendly with them. In some cases we did, and some, with some bands we did, some bands we didn't. Blue Oyster Cult, I only got to be friends with them in the last, you know, 15 years. <laughs> they always hated us. But it was like we inherited the hatred for Kiss, unfortunately. So we really did start off in a hole, uh, in a sense, without... It was kind of weird. We thought it would be good to be associated with Kiss, but it really wasn't. It was definitely not good. And there's one really uh, interesting moment in the book where you, Doug asks you, I guess, why one reason why stars didn't, quote-unquote, make it, and you uh, point out directly one guy who's a very uh, influential guy in the history of rock radio, and that's Lee Abrams, who's a consultant, and you say that he was basically, you know, he basically didn't put stars on the list of bands that should be played. It's exactly right. So when we go play San Antonio, for example, we pack places, we play festivals there. Why? Because our records continue to be played there from 1980 on. But from 1980 on, around most of the country, people stopped, radio stations stopped playing us. Cleveland continued. A few handful of cities did. But everyone else went over this with Lee Abrams' AOR. Uh, what was that thing? What do they call it? Classic rock radio, I guess, right? Superstars, according to the book, right, Superstars, Doug? yeah. Yeah, superstars okay. format. Yeah. Obviously, he didn't like us, and he says that's not the case, but uh, you have a hard time fooling me. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, too, that you mentioned Texas, because I took a call from a listener last week when I was talking about stars, and he was in Texas, and he said, I think in San Antonio, to this day, they play Coliseum Rock constantly, and it's like it was a, a big thing there. Yes, Coliseum Rock in particular, but they do play other songs, obviously, and and that's what it's all about. It's about feeding people music and then that music continues the journey wasn't the biggest band in the 70s people make it out to be but they weren't but they got into that classic rock thing of constant constant over and over playing on those classic rock stations and and i love journey by the way i love so many different bands i'm not a negative uh guy when it comes to listening to other bands I, i'm a big fan of music you know and uh some people have too big of an ego to really be and when they're musicians making albums they have too big of an ego to like another band it's weird right but i'm not like that so 
Uh, yeah. So anyway, I don't know. I got off the track. Sorry. Well, that's right. I got. I actually have to wrap up here anyway because they're going to cut me if I don't end to, to time. So, Doug, um, congrats on the book. Well, I'm sure we could do this again somewhere down the line because it's endless. The stuff that's in it, and I want to remind everybody to go pick it up. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Doug and really, really enjoyed his book. And it's great revisiting that era of rock music, which really is probably my favorite as far as uh, all the decades of rock that I like. The 70s stuff I still just love so much, and I cannot recommend the book more highly. And thanks to Richie Rano. A little surprise check-in and call-in joining us there at the end and was great to include him as well. I'm serious. It would be awesome to do a roundtable with a member from each of those four bands. And uh, I, I also was serious about what I said about Doug and loving to see him write a book about those other bands I mentioned, the obscure 70s hard rock bands. Uh, I could do a whole book just on that. All right. I appreciate you guys listening, of course, and uh, I thank you for doing so. Spread the word. Be sure to subscribe, favorite, all that good stuff that you do with a podcast. I know there's a ton of them out there these days. But I appreciate you checking out mine and making it a part of your listening. And again, what you just heard originated on my Sirius XM radio show. And I hope you check that out every day if you're in the U.S. or Canada. And you're only getting a tiny sample here on the podcast. But you can hear me daily, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on 106 volume and nightly replays of that show. 10 to midnight Eastern or you can just go on the Sirius XM app and listen whenever you want. Have yourself a great rest of the week, everybody. I'll catch you next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is produced by Katie Irizari at Eddie Trunk on social media. Have a good week. Uh-huh.